Well, two weeks ago, uh, we kicked off a brand new series, and I introduced you to this idea that our modern American culture is saturated with the spirit of immediatism. And immediatism is this word that simply just means we're obsessed with getting what we want immediately, which means we want things without delay in time, so we want them quickly. That's what we usually think of when we hear the word immediately. But we want things without any hard work, so we want things easily. And we want things without any outside help, so independently. I want to get things on my own because I can do it on my own. So basically, we want, we want things without any mediators, unmediated. That's what the word immediate actually means, unmediated. So uh, 40 years ago, if you wanted to go see a great movie, here's what you had to do. You had to go buy a newspaper. Uh, kids will tell you what those are in a little bit. Um, you had to go buy a newspaper, and then you flipped to the end of the newspaper, and you found that page in the newspaper that listed all the movie times, right? And there weren't a bunch of them, because every movie theater in the city had like three screens, and there were just a handful of movies uh, options available, made by just a handful of movie studios. Um, and so you picked one of those movies, and then you drove down to the movie theater, or you had mom or dad drive you down there, and then you came up to the lady in the box office, and you pulled something out of your pocket called cash, and we'll tell, kids will tell you what that is later also. Uh, you used cash, and you bought a ticket, and you were handed an actual paper ticket, and then you walked in, and you gave the paper ticket to someone, and then you walked into the theater, and you sat down, and you watched the movie. Now, you can still do that today, and some of us do that for some of the big movies, right? But most people, if you want to watch a movie today, you don't even have to get off the couch, Right? I mean, you just pull this little thing out of your pocket, and then you have thousands, not just a handful, but thousands of options to choose from. You don't have to pull anything else out. You just hit a button or a touch screen real quickly, and suddenly, you don't even have to leave the couch. You can sit there and watch your movie instantly, immediately. And the technology that makes this possible is amazing, right? And it makes the acquisition of so many things in our lives and our relationship to so many things in our lives immediate, including God and faith. And, and I'm not talking about iPhones or the internet at this point. We explored a couple of weeks ago that huge shifts have taken place in Western culture over the last several hundred years, so much so that several hundred years ago, when people wanted to connect with God or know God or understand God or experience God, they always did it through meaningful mediators. But today, we seem to want to expect to relate to God and experience God immediately, quickly, Easily, on our own, without any outside help, independently, individually, personally. It's just about me and a personal relationship with God. But there's some huge and dangerous implications of this spirit, spirit of immediatism when it comes to our faith and when it comes to God. And if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, we unpacked and explored some of those implications. And you can always go back and listen to that message um, online. And the question that we raised was simply this. What if there are some mediators of faith that were actually helpful that we lost, that we need to go back and reclaim? Mediators that would actually be necessary and essential to the kind of genuine and authentic faith that we actually all deeply want. Well, what if the easy and immediate 
An unmediated approach to faith turns out to be quite shallow. Turns out to actually be hollow. Turns out to be deeply unsatisfying. What what if part of the reason that so many people aren't going to church anymore is because churches have pitched this instant download, no-cost version of faith? And so we sit there and we watch the movie, and after five minutes, it's kind of boring. And we decide to just switch the channel or find something else that's way more interesting, that can capture our attention a little bit better. Do you understand the analogy? People are leaving church. Many of us are leaving church, we're leaving faith, we're leaving religion because it's not providing the immediate results or the immediate entertainment or the immediate answers or the immediate satisfaction that we've come to expect in every other area of our lives. So what do we do about that? Well, I humbly have suggested, and I could be totally wrong here, but I think the answer is to actually reclaim some of those important mediators that we've lost, that God has always used to connect with us, to connect with humanity. And so last week, I suggested that we need to engage the mediating power of material objects. If that sounds kind of strange, then you can go back and listen to that message as well. But this week, I've got a second suggestion. We need to engage the mediating power of the local church. Now, just for a moment, I want to explore what does this word church mean? Because most people today, when they use the word church, they refer to the building, right? The building that we're in right now on the corner of university and exposition. But in Jesus' day, they didn't have church buildings, That word church actually never referred to a building. It's not the way he used it, and it's not the way his early followers used it. In fact, it's the Greek word. The New Testament was written in Greek, and that was one of the languages they spoke at the time. It's the Greek word ekklesia. And this word didn't originally have a Christian or a religious meaning at all. In fact, in ancient Greek, it just means a people who are called together for a single purpose. Or a people who assemble together or gather together for a specific purpose. So even ancient Athens had an ecclesia. There were a group of people in ancient Athens who had attained the privilege of citizenship and they would gather together either weekly or bi-weekly to talk about civic matters related to their city. And the word used in all the classical literature to refer to this group of people was ecclesia. They were the group of people that regularly gathered for a purpose. And this is how the New Testament uses the word as well. So Jesus uses the word ecclesia only twice in the the accounts we have of his teaching where he refers to the group of people who are going to become followers of him. But when you get to the book of Acts, which describes this new movement that's beginning to grow, you start to see this word all over the place. Well, let me show you some examples From Acts 9, it says, Then the ecclesia throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. So Acts is describing this movement of people that's beginning to spread out of the city of Jerusalem. It's spreading north to Samaria. That's like north to Wyoming, right? And then it's spreading north to Galilee, all the way to Montana, right? And it's just moving. And, it's, and, and these group of people, wherever they are, if you've become a follower of Jesus, you've joined this group of people. And it doesn't matter where you live. And it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter any of those things. You're a part of this 
ecclesia, this group of people who are gathering together for a united purpose, and that's to grow in their relationship with Jesus and to tell other people about Jesus. So ecclesia is used in this very general way to refer to this new community of people all over the place. But it's also used very specifically. Here's Acts again. It says, news of this reached the ecclesia in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So something happened right before this. We won't read that part. It happens in Antioch, and we're told that news of what happened reached the ecclesia, but not just the ecclesia everywhere, but the specific ecclesia in Jerusalem, the specific ecclesia that gathers there regularly that's a subset, that's a part of the larger whole. So there's the general ecclesia or the general church, and then there's the specific church in this one city. So Paul, when he writes his letters, he's often writing to a specific church in a specific city. So a few examples here. In 1 Corinthians, the very beginning of this letter, he writes Paul to the ecclesia of God in Corinth. But then look at one of his letters to a guy named Philemon. This is how it starts off. Paul to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the ecclesia that meets in your home. So here Paul is addressing a specific ecclesia that meets in a person's home. So remember, there weren't church buildings back then because uh, they weren't allowed to have those. And uh, there might have been multiple groups of Christians that were a part of this larger movement in this city that met in different homes. But Paul is saying, I'm writing to this specific one that meets right there in your house, Philemon. So the word ecclesia or the word church, the way Jesus and the New Testament use it, really just refers to the universal community of faith. That when you become a follower of Jesus, you become part of this universal community of faith, but it also refers to the local expression of that community that gathers regularly. Now that brings us back to the issue that we're gonna discuss today. When we feel disconnected from God, when we sometimes feel like our faith is faltering or things aren't going right or we're just not connected. Oftentimes we think the problem is the church. It's just not doing anything for me, right? I mean, I go there and it's kind of boring. It's irrelevant. The preaching is sometimes okay. Sometimes it's not great. The people are kind of hypocritical, right? They say one thing and they don't do what they say. And, and who needs church anyways, right? I can go connect with God in the mountains, Right? I can go to yoga and meditate. Right? I, can, I can do so many, I can go hang out with some friends. I can, I can just have some time of silence every Sunday at a coffee shop. Right? I can do so many other things. Well, I go to church if it's not really doing anything for me. And without even realizing it, what we've done is begun to treat church, the people, and the rather regular gathering of those people like a product to be consumed. And when it's not good, in our opinion, we just find a better product, something that's more satisfying and immediately fulfilling. And what I want to suggest today is I don't actually think the problem is the church. Now, there are churches with problems, right? But I don't think the larger problem is the church. I think the problem is our perspective of the church, the problem is that we've lost and we've neglected the mediating power of the church. 
We don't need to lean away from the church when it doesn't seem to be doing what we think it should do. Maybe we need to lean more into the church. And so today, I want to give you three challenges that are just going to um, help unpack this idea. And and these challenges are for everybody, uh, wherever you are on your spiritual journey. So if you're here today and you've been going to church your whole life, it's for you. If you're new to church and you're sort of experiencing it for the first time, it's for you as well. If you grew up going to church and you sort of ditched it at some point because it was really bad and you're coming back, this is for you. Wherever you are on your journey of faith. These challenges are for you. And I will say this, if you're a young adult or you're a parent, this is especially important for you. So here's the first challenge. Number one, go to church when it's inconvenient. Go to church when it's inconvenient. Let me just read a couple of passages for you. Um, The first one is the earliest description of the local church from the book of Acts. This is what it says. Every once in a while, they met together in the temple courts. And when it was convenient, they met in homes and kept discussions at the surface level. That's not what it says. (laughs) Um, No, here's what it actually says. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Every day they met together. And then the writer of Hebrews, who was writing somewhat later as the church movement was spreading, wrote this. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, it wasn't easy for them to meet together regularly. Did you know that people's lives were way more busy back then than they are today? I mean, we think we're really busy today, but we're really busy because we fill up all our discretionary time. People didn't have discretionary time back then. They were working all the time. They were doing things that were necessary to simply live. They didn't have Saturdays to go hiking. They didn't have hours every night to sit down and watch TV. They didn't have weekends. Sabbath was a Jewish concept, not a Roman concept. Unless you were really wealthy, you worked seven days a week. So it wasn't easy for them. It wasn't convenient at all for them to gather together regularly with one another. And apparently some people stopped doing it, right? Some people gave up because the writer of Hebrews says, don't do that. Don't give up. This is essential. This is priority. And the habit seemed to be, at least early on from the few descriptions we have, that people would gather regularly in larger groups, sometimes at the temple, and then people would rather uh, gather regularly in smaller groups, often in people's homes. Now, why was this so important for them? Well, partly because they just wanted to be together. They made friendships, right? Partly because they began to be persecuted and there were no other relationships they had that were significant in their lives. These were the only people they could hang out with. But partly, it was because they believed something about church that we tend to not believe anymore. They believed that only when we are together are we the body of Christ. 
That, that only when we are together do we actually mediate Jesus to ourselves and to one another and to our world. So much so that John would later say, you know what, you can't really love God or experience him apart from other people. Apart from hanging out regularly with other brothers and sisters, you don't really know and experience and love God. Nobody, nobody understands the fullness of God just by staring at a mountain sunset by themselves. Right? You might see a little bit of his creativity, but if you want to really know and understand and experience what God is like, you do it with other people. Because if you want to know and experience and understand forgiveness, you do it when you have to forgive somebody else that's wronged you, or they forgive you and you've wronged them. You want to know genuine love that God has for our lives? You know it when you have to love somebody and they have to love you. You want to really know creativity? Don't go stare at a sunset. Hang out with other people. God is so creative in the way he's created all of us. You see, it's when we're together that we mediate God to one another. But not if we've reduced church to an optional event that we show up to every once in a while, whenever it's convenient. Now, let me tell you where I learned this, because um, it wasn't in seminary. It's not like in seminary they say to all pastors, tell people they have to go to church, because your life depends on it, right? Um, I mean, they probably could, uh, but uh, that's not where I learned it, and I didn't actually learn this from the Bible, although I, I later came to see that I think the Bible teaches this. I learned this from my parents who modeled it for me. So I've told many of you I grew up going to a Southern Baptist church. And uh, as a kid, I had to dress up. I wore a coat and tie uh, every Sunday in the humid South. So that wasn't fun. Um, we went to both Sunday school and to church. So we were there from like 930 in the morning to about 1230. Um, and we lived 20 minutes away. I grew up in Chapel Hill and we went to this church in Durham, North Carolina. And it was about 20 minutes away. So it wasn't even that close. And it was Durham where Duke is. So that was like enemy territory, right? So um, we sang old hymns at the church, and, and it was with a piano and organ, so uh, not the coolest music, you know, when you're a kid. And, uh, and I didn't hate it, and I didn't love it. It wasn't even a question of hate or love. It wasn't a question of like or dislike. That's not why we went, my parents never asked me on the way home, hey, son, did you enjoy church today? Like, we just, that didn't ever come up. We just went every Sunday because my parents were committed to being a part of a, the community of faith, to being with other people who were followers of Jesus. And you might think, well, that's easy for you if you go to a really good church. Um, well, there were serious problems in my church. Um, it was a Baptist church, so there's always some theological debate where people are picking sides and making mountains out of molehills, right? So that happened all as a kid. Um, there were two different ministers when I was a kid who had moral failures or affairs. I remember that vividly. Um, there was a group of people in our church uh, who didn't want to support this local inner city ministry. Our church was right downtown in the inner city, and they didn't want to support this inner city ministry because it helped a whole bunch of kids who were black. I'll never forget being in a church meeting where my dad stood up 
And he said, that's wrong. That's just flat out wrong. So, so it wasn't all rosy and rainbows, like growing up in this church. Now, there were some great people there, and we had great friends, and we made great relationships, but it wasn't always good, and it certainly wasn't cool as an elementary kid or middle school or high school student. But there was just never a question for my parents. We went every Sunday. I mean, if, if there was an option to do something else, if somebody else invited me to do something on Sunday morning, I was like, sorry, we go to church on Sundays. It was just already in the schedule. We planned everything else around it. If there was a sports league that had their games on Sunday, not an option for me. When I slept over at another friend's house on Saturday night, everyone else slept in, and my parents came by and picked me up at 9 a.m. to go to church. And just so you know, there was never a whiff of we're doing this to earn brownie points with God. There was never this sense of we're doing this because he has his nice and naughty list up there, and we're going to be really nice. You know, like There was never any of that sense at all, at least not from my parents. No, we went. Because that's just what followers of Jesus do. We went because you can't really experience God apart from the church, apart from a local community of faith. And we went because we don't join a local community of faith or participate in a local community of faith on our terms or whenever it's convenient. We don't go whenever we think the music's going to be good or the preaching is going to be good or, 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 or we don't have anything else happening that weekend and we just happen to have a free Sunday open. No, we go every single week because that's how we meet God. That's how we know him. That's how we understand him. That's how we grow in our faith. It's with these other people who are sometimes amazing and sometimes really dysfunctional. But as John would say, you can't know God apart from being with his people regularly. So challenge number one for you, for all of us, would be go to church, even when it's inconvenient. And parents, uh, let me just say a word to you for a second. Um, I know it's hard. Like I get it. It's hard when you have babies. I get it. I had three babies at the same time. Like, it is hard. It's hard when you have multiple kids. It's hard the, the older they get, and there's more options, and there's more stuff to do, and there's just so many other alternatives. I get it. It is so hard. But don't sacrifice your children's future faith for what's convenient now. Because here's the truth, if you model and teach to your kids, the church is just one of those options and we basically just engage it whenever it's convenient, you know what's going to happen when they leave the house? They're going to leave church and they're going to leave God all together for good. And I know you don't want that and I don't want that. So let's model what it looks like to commit to a community of faith even when it's not convenient. So that's the first challenge. Here's the second challenge. Challenge number two, commit to a local church for the long haul. So this goes with the first challenge, but the first one's more about just kind of showing up week in and week out, but this one's more about showing up over the long haul, committing to a place and a community for the long haul. It's saying, look, when I share my life with these people over years, right, 
then we begin to share in each other's joys and we begin to celebrate when things happen in our lives that are worth celebrating and we mourn together when things are going bad in our lives and we have to apologize to one another because we start having conflict together and we have to know what real apologies and real forgiveness begin to look like. And it's that expression of church or it's that expression of ecclesia that over the long haul really mediates God's power and presence in our lives. But it doesn't happen over the course of days or weeks or even months. It happens over years, even over decades, which is why it's so important, especially if you're a young adult and we live in this culture that is so mobile and we're so tempted to, to change jobs or change houses or change cities every year or two. It's so important to sometimes, at least when it comes to our faith, to push back on that and ask the question, what are the long-term implications of my short-term decisions? So at New Denver, uh, one way we encourage people to commit over the long haul is just to become a member. I mean, becoming a member is just a, a way to formalize your commitment to a community of faith. And we never talk about this very much. I think this is the first time I've ever mentioned it in 10 years in a sermon, right? Because we don't make a huge deal about it, but it's an easy way to say, I want to commit to a community of faith over the long haul. So if you have questions about that, come talk to me. We'll put some information about membership on the table out there, but that might be something you want to think about. But let me just make it super clear. This is not about a piece of paper. It's not about signing your name to anything. It's not even about our church. It's about a genuine and authentic expression of faith and a genuine and authentic encounter with God and realizing that the entire New Testament is written to people who are just gathering together as a community of faith and they could never have imagined experiencing God outside that community of faith because they knew that's where they most deeply experience it in this long-term commitment to one another. So, number one, uh, go to a church when it's inconvenient. Second, commit to a local church over the long haul, but here's a third one. Pursue intentional relationships with other sojourners. And I love that word sojourner because it just reminds us we're a group of people that's on a journey. So pursue intentional relationships with others in that community. Now, in the first two challenges, I, I seem to talk mostly about church on Sundays, right? Just showing up on Sunday. And I think that's important. I think we've neglected that. I think we've missed something there. We've somehow bought into this idea that I can experience more of God in the mountains by myself or, or somewhere else than I ever could in an hour of singing and praying and just being with other people. And I can believe that if I want, that I can find more of God in other places. But you know what? That's a religion I've made up. That's a religion on my own terms. That's me mediating faith for myself. And there's no hint of that anywhere in the early church or in the New Testament. And honestly, this is the more important thing. This isn't about guilt. Here's the more important thing. I think all of us that try that eventually come to find that faith is so shallow. Then when faith is on my terms, when it's me mediating my own relationship with God, it's not really a faith at all. It doesn't point to anything bigger outside of myself. It doesn't connect to anything that demands more of me than I do for myself. It doesn't connect to anything that has a bigger dream and a bigger vision for my life than I do 
for myself. So I think there's this mediating quality to consistently just hanging out in a room together every week, singing and praying and listening and talking. But I also think that we need to make intentional moves towards developing deeper relationships with other people in that community. Relationships where you can be more vulnerable than you are here sitting in this room on Sunday morning. Relationships where you can ask questions and express doubts. Where you can share stories, share laughter, share meals together. You remember that line from Acts? They met together every day in the temple courts, but they also broke bread. They shared meals together in each other's homes. Two different contexts, two different purposes. In one context, they gathered for praying together and for listening and for teaching and for learning. But when they gathered in homes, I'm guessing there was some prayer and some teaching and some listening and learning that took place. But I think the central focus was just relationships. It was community. It was authentically being together and having honest conversations. And so here at our church at New Denver, uh, we do this in D groups. Stephen mentioned earlier, um, we're starting those soon. And our D groups probably look very culturally different than all the gatherings that happened in the early church in people's homes. I'm guessing they didn't have online signups for their little house gatherings, right? We're probably way more organized than they ever were. It's just our way of doing things, and it's not perfect. It's not perfect. It's just one attempt at setting the table for community and relationships and spiritual growth to happen. And so we don't even equate D groups with community here. We just see D groups as like a garden that we're creating where there's the possibility that community and relationships and growth might actually happen. And so this fall, we have more spots in D groups than we've ever had before. And, and if they happen to fill up, we'll somehow add some more D groups to make more space for people. And that would be a great problem to have. And so what if we all took this challenge and said, I'm going to take the next step. And, and maybe you're new here. As Stephen mentioned, this is a great way to develop new relationships here in our community. Maybe you've been coming to New Denver for a long time and you're tempted to think, well, I've been there. I've done that. I've done that. You know, I want to encourage you to still take this step and pursue deeper community. I was talking with somebody a few months ago and, uh, and he's been coming to our church for quite a while. And uh, he said, you know, I love New Denver, and, um, and yet I'm not really feeling close to anyone here. I don't feel like I have any deep relationships, and I don't know that I've found real community. And, and I said, well, how have your D group experiences been? Because I know he had been in a couple of D groups, and he said, they were okay, but I just didn't learn anything new, so I stopped going. And I said, you know, I, I hope there are some discussions that take place in D groups where people learn things that are new. I hope people grow in their knowledge of who God is or who Jesus is or what the Bible teaches. But what if that's not the reason that you need to be in a D group? What if it's not learning something new? What if that's not near as important for you as the community and the relationships that you really need? What if that's, and I don't think I would have said this back then, but I would say it now. What if the community and the relationships that you need are what's going to mediate God's power and presence in your lives way more right now than any new knowledge you might learn? But it's not going to happen in one meeting. 
It's not going to happen in just a couple of meetings. It doesn't happen like that. That's not how it works. It works over the long haul. That's how mediators work. That's the mediating power of relationships when you intentionally pursue them. That's the mediating power of gathering with a community of faith when you do that. And that's the mediating power of committing to it over the long haul and not expecting immediate results. So here's the last question for you. How have you been challenged today? And what might you do about it? Let me pray for us. God, you've been using um, this imperfect community called the church for 2,000 years. Um, And I know some of us could probably say amen to so much of what I said today because they've had experiences where they've met you through other people, through an involvement in a church. And I pray that we would continue to tell those stories so that we would be reminded that it's when we're together that we experience you in such a deep and powerful way. I know there might be others here today who have had some bad experiences with the church. And, um, and God, I pray that you would help them to overcome that. I pray that you would give us all courage in the midst of any fears, courage in the midst of a sense of not wanting to be vulnerable, and a desire to deeply connect with you to know you in a deeper way. Help us to do that. Pray this in your name. Amen.